may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And if you're in need of a Bible this morning, Mark is here to give you one. So just raise your hand um, if you need a Bible this morning. Of course, the text will also be on the screens. Actually, I don't think it is going to be on the screens this week because I think I forgot to put it on there now that I think about it. So just listen along or read along, please, in your Bibles. And these are familiar words, very familiar words to all the adults and all the children in this room. So I ask for you not to let the familiarity of the words keep you from hearing what they have to say. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 21. The word of the Lord says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that the effect of these words, this Ten Commandments that we're so familiar with that we just sort of can quote them as if it's some sort of great accomplishment. Lord, I pray that they would sink deep into our hearts so that our reaction to the Word would be as it should be. 
we should tremble. We should tremble like the Israelites. We should tremble at your word. Oh Lord, when I hear these words, when I hear these Ten Commandments, I feel the same way the Israelites did. Lord, as you speak these words to me, I deserve to die. Because these Ten Commandments, I think I've broken all of them. And I deserve to die. Lord, I thank you that we live in the shadow of the cross and we can draw near. We can draw near to the mountain of God. We can draw near to the thick darkness. Not because of us. We're like the Israelites. We have to stand far off. But like the Israelites who had Moses as a mediator, a temporary mediator, we have Christ as our eternal mediator who right now stands before the throne and begs us to come near, come near to the throne of grace to find help during your time of need. And so, God, we want to come near to you right now. We want to let your word speak to us, penetrate our heart. And we want the cross to be that comfort and that balm that gives us healing and gives us purpose and gives us the grace to be people of your word who will keep these commandments because we love you and we love those whom you've created for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The other day, um, I was looking at myself in the mirror and I realized that the older I get, um, the more I'm starting to look like my dad. my, my hair is the exact same kind of hair he has uh, when I let my hair grow out, <laughs> that is. Uh, I noticed that my, my, my hair is starting to recede in the exact same places, exact same places that my, my dad's hair is receding. I'm starting to get little thin patches and baldings in the same areas that he got thin patches and baldings. My, my body shape is nearly identical. We're... we're, we're uh, we're, we're chubby in all the same places, and, and, there, and there's something interesting about this, this genetic pattern where, where children off, often physically uh, be, become a mirror image of their parents, how people can just look at you and, and they can say, man, you are obviously your father's son. I, I can tell by just, just how you look and that, that expression on your, on your face, and, and I think <clears throat> what's even more interesting is how we sometimes become a mirror image of our parents beyond just what we look like. Just, just, just like someone can sometimes look at your appearance, they can look at your face and your, your body shape and all that, and they can say, yeah, I, I know who your father is, that, that's your dad. I can, I can tell, I can see the resemblance. Sometimes someone can look at how we act. Uh, they can look at how we behave. They can look at how we talk. They can look at our mannerisms, and, and it becomes clearer who our Father is, one of the greatest compliments or one of the greatest insults, depending on who your dad is, is for someone to say, you know, you're just like your dad. You're a chip off the old block. You really remind me of your father and how you're acting. Now, depending on who you're talking to, <laughs> that, can, that can be a very significant meaningful, complimentary statement. Other people, them's fighting words. 
You don't say that. It really all depends on who your father is. And I think that this, this pattern where children physically and even behavior-wise image their, their dads and, Im- and image their moms is meant to be a reflection of a greater and more significant spiritual reality. Namely, mankind was created by God in God's image and likeness with the purpose to glorify God by imaging the character and the truths of God to the world. And we're continuing our sermon series uh, that we've called the Jesus Tribe. We are exploring one of the major storylines in the Bible, that being that God from the very beginning, even before the beginning, has purposed in his heart to, uh, to have a people, to have a community, to have a tribe, if you will, set apart for himself for the glory of God. And we've been spending many weeks in the, in the book of Genesis looking at this. And now we are going to look at the book of Exodus. We're going to spend a little bit of time this morning in Exodus. And we're going to learn that, uh, something else about God's plan, about uh, God's purpose to have this, this tribe for himself. We're going to learn something that wasn't necessarily all that clear uh, in the book of Genesis. Not only does God purpose to have a community for himself, not only will this community call upon the name of the Lord, like we, we've, we've seen that in Genesis... We've seen that in particular, I think of Genesis uh, 4, at the end of Genesis 4, you have a, have a people that's coming from the line of Seth that are calling upon the name of the Lord. God wants a community that is worshiping Him, calling on His name. Not only will they be a numerous people, as we remember we talked the past few weeks about God's covenant with Abraham. And, and, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abraham, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the, as the, as the, as the sand on the seashore as the stars that are in the heavens are going to be a numerous people. We learn that. But also, we learn now in Exodus that, uh, that God desires to relate to his people as a father, and that this people will be regarded in terms of sonship. So it's not just that God is interested in people that are worshiping him and serving him, Uh, it's not just just God is wanting to save people from sin, it's more than that. God is wanting to build a people where he is their father and they are his sons. And it is because of this, this, their sonship that this people is to image their father. This is supposed to be a people, when someone sees them, they should be able to say, yep, it's pretty clear who your father is. And in the book of Exodus, what do you have God doing? You have God setting his heart upon a specific group of people, that being the Israelites. We see that he's decided that this people will be his special people, and he adopts them into his family. Interesting scripture in um, uh, Exodus 19. You can kind of flip back uh, one chapter prior to what we looked at uh, a few minutes ago in Exodus 19. It's interesting, you know, God sends his servant Moses to the land of Egypt where the Israelites are slaves, and, and, and when Moses stands before the king of Egypt, uh, you know, he says to Pharaoh, what does he say? He says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. I'm going to get to Exodus 19 in just a moment, but first I want us to realize that he he identifies Israel not just as a collection of people that he wants to redeem, rather he identifies them in terms of sonship, in terms of adoption. 
God comes in and he rescues Israel from an oppressive, uh, abusive tyranny, from bondage, and he takes them away, to, to, uh, away from Egypt and he becomes a father to Israel. God brings Israel to Mount Sinai and he gives them his law. He gives them his commandments and he's telling them, I am God and I am your father, and you are my son. You were once a part of another house, another family, and you lived a certain way. Now you are a part of my household, you're a part of my family, and this is how you are to live. This is how we do things in this family. Now I should pause, this is probably good as any other place to pause and and talk about this language of of sonship, and, and God referring to his people as sons, because one of the natural questions could be, well, what about the women? I mean, there's, there's women here as well. There's women in, in Israel. And what we need to recognize in the scriptures is when it's talking, when it's using this language of, of sonship, it's, it's, not, it's not talking about gender. It has everything to do with inheritance. And I'm not going to go into a ton of detail. I've explained this before in prior sermons and in Bible studies, and we can talk about it more at another time. But this, this language of, of sonship has everything to do with inheritance. Uh, in particular, in, that, in, in the ancient world, you had the, the, uh, the sons, and particularly the firstborn sons, who would receive a, uh, 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 the significant portion of the inheritance from the father. And so God the Father looks at this people, and he regards them as a son that he is going to give an inheritance to. It's not that God forgot that there was women uh, amongst the people of Israel, but as he sees them and as he relates to them, he relates to them in terms of sonship. Now, there are three things I want us to look at today as we move forward. One, God has saved his people to serve him. Two, God has saved his people to image him. And three, God has saved his people through a mediator. First one, God has saved his people to serve him. It's interesting how the Ten Commandments begin. God doesn't start this by saying, Hey, Israel, okay, here's a bunch of rules you need to live by, and they are as follows. No, that's not how he starts the Ten Commandments. He starts it by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, why does he do that? What's the point of beginning the Ten Commandments that way? The point is that God is reminding Israel what he has done for them. He has loved them. He has rescued them. He has redeemed him. Therefore, for that reason, you shall have no other gods before me. What's happening in the Exodus is, is more than just God setting a people free from slavery. Sometimes when we think about the Exodus story, we see, we, we see it as if the ultimate point of the story is freedom from slavery and that the deliverance from Egypt is the happy ending to that story. But that's not the end of the story. It's actually the beginning of the story. God tells us that the purpose of this freedom is not just so you don't have to be forced to work for Pharaoh anymore. Look now with me at Exodus 19, starting at verse 3. Actually, the middle of verse 3, God is talking to Moses. And look at what God says. Says the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. By the way, that, there's that kind of that adoption type 
imagery there, that adoption type language. I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. And then verse 5. Now therefore, for that reason, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. So God has saved Israel. He has redeemed Israel for a purpose. And that purpose is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the Ten Commandments is the foundation for how this nation is to live. Now what does it mean to be a kingdom of of priests it means that Israel is to mediate the covenant blessings of God to the nations. It means that they are to represent God to the Gentile world at large, and they are supposed to show the world uh, what God is like and be the means by which the world would uh, would come to to know God and would even come to Him. And this is very significant, very very significant to realize. That God does not just save people for the sake of saving people. And he doesn't just save people so that they can be autonomous and so that they can do their own, own thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we think of freedom, that's how we usually think of it. In terms of personal, individual autonomy. That's, that's kind of a very American way of thinking of freedom. But Israel is not autonomous. After they are set free. Instead, they are being bound to God in covenant relationship. So it's not that Israel uh, is going from having a master in Egypt to having no master at all after they are set free from slavery. No, what's happening is that Israel is simply changing masters. There's a transfer in masters now. They were bound to the king of Egypt. God came in and he overthrew Pharaoh. And now Israel is bound to a new master, that being Yahweh. And the freedom that Israel is experiencing is a freedom to be what God has intended them to be. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in service to their God. Now what was true of Old Testament Israel is true for you. Many times when we reflect on our own salvation, or when we, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about it in terms of being set free. And that's true. It's very biblical to talk about the gospel in that way. The one that Jesus sets free is free indeed. But a lot of times we don't really think about what that means. A lot of people have kind of a, kind of a vague and fuzzy concept of biblical Christian Freedom. We talk about Jesus setting us free, but we're not exactly sure what that means. What it means is that like, like Israel was in bondage, you were in bondage to a, a tyrant, to a despot that was more wicked and more powerful than Pharaoh. You were a slave to the devil and to sin and to death. And just like God came in and he overthrew Pharaoh to, and set Israel free from bondage, we see Jesus Christ in the gospel crushing the head of the serpent through his death and resurrection, and he has set you free from the devil's bondage. And a lot of times when we think about salvation and freedom, we stop there. That's what we, what we think of, like, like the story's over. We've been set free, and we're going to heaven, and that's it. But that's, that's not it. That's not the end of the story. You have been set free from Satan, 
not to be autonomous and just kind of go your own way and just kind of do your own thing. You have been saved for a purpose. And what is the purpose? The Apostle Peter tells you the purpose in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle says, and he's talking to you now. This is for you. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ... You are a chosen race, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, does that kind of language sound familiar? That's not a coincidence. Peter is doing this on, on purpose. He's using this language on purpose. And if you, if you read 1 Peter, it becomes very clear right away that Peter sees the church as the true Israel. He sees the church as the thing that Old Testament Israel was pointing forward to all along. He takes language from the book of Exodus, language that was ascribed to a people who had been released from bondage, and Peter takes that language and he turns to the church and he applies it to the church and he says, you have been saved for a purpose. You, Harbin's church, have been saved for a purpose. You are part of a chosen race. Harbins. You are part of a royal priesthood, Harbins Church. You are part of a holy nation, Harbins Church. You are a people for God's own possession, Harbins Church. Your purpose, Harbins Church, is to be holy and to be priests. You may not think of yourself that way. You may not think of yourself as holy or a priest. And yet the scripture says that's God's purpose and plan for you. Some of you come from a Catholic background. So when you think of priests, you've got all these kind of images that are in your mind of something that's not necessarily in the Bible. Uh, you, you, you've, got, you've got this image of your mind of some special person with a, with, a, with a collar who belongs to this kind of select class of people who are doing something that nobody else can legitimately do. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Actually, you are all priests, and you are all holy if you are in Christ. Have you ever seen yourself as a priest? Have you ever seen yourself as holy and set apart for God's purposes? I mean, that changes everything when you ascribe that kind of language to yourself. You are meant to be those things. And what does it mean to be holy? It means, in part, to be just like Old Testament Israel. Live and conduct yourself in a way that is going to distinguish yourself from the rest of the world so that it is clear to everyone that God is your God and that God is your Father. What does it mean to be a priest? Well, just as Old Old Testament Israel was meant to mediate the covenant blessings to the Gentiles, you are to bless the world... You, Harbin's church, are to bless the world through living out and through proclaiming the new covenant blessings of God to the nations. After Peter says that you are a chosen race, and after he says you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession, he tells you to what end? What's the purpose of all that? You are these things, Peter says... 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you are those things, according to Peter. And he goes on to say, just a couple of verses later, again, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, he goes on to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, it is fascinating that Peter talks that way. Because uh, Peter is writing primarily to Gentiles. And yet he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This kind of language is in keeping with Peter's premise that the church is the new Israel, is the Israel of God. So when he says Gentiles, he's talking about anyone who's not a part of the church. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are not saved simply to hole up in these walls once a week and hole up in our own little Christian bubbles in our homes we we're not just saved just to soak up and enjoy the blessings of our salvation and tough luck for the rest of the world. And I'm, and I'm afraid too many Christians live that way, to hell with the world, literally. And we, we get saved and we isolate ourselves from the world. We insulate ourselves completely from the world. We have our Christian friends. We have our Christian books. We have our Christian bumper stickers and our Christian t-shirts and our Christian music and our Christian radio stations and we even have a secret language that nobody else outside of the church understands and we have created a very comfortable, safe Christian ghetto and we are enjoying it and we are soaking it up while a wor- the world around us is going to hell. And tough luck for those wicked people. At least I'm saved. At least my family is saved. At least my kids are okay. And we'll just hole up in, ho- in our home and in our church walls where it's safe and comfortable and we'll just rub shoulders with the world as little as we possibly can. That's not why you were saved. You were saved to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation so that you and me so that we together can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we can't do that when we're just here amongst ourselves. We're meant to do it to the world. So God has saved you for a purpose. To serve him. And to be priest and a holy nation. Second thing is that God has saved his people to image him. And these things kind of overlap. I know that. It's not neat, compartmentalized little points. They overlap with one another. But God has saved his people to image him. God saves Israel from Egypt. He brings them to this mountain. He reminds them of what he has done for them. And then he gives them his law. Now, what is the law? Typically, when we think of the law, we just we think of... Just a bunch of rules that we are expected to obey or else. And in one sense, the law is that. But the law is so much more than that. To have a law, you must have a lawgiver. And if you have a lawgiver, you learn something about the nature and the character of the lawgiver through his laws. 
And one of the purposes of the law is not just to show you how to live, but to show you something about the one through whom these laws have come forth. The law of God isn't arbitrary. It's not, like, it's not that God was just sitting around one day and thinking, well, I think it would be a good idea if people didn't steal from one another. So let me just invent that law and give that to the people. Well, maybe it would be helpful for these people to just not be committing adultery and just things getting out of control. So let me just give them that rule as well. Maybe that'll help them out. No, no, that's not what's going on here. These aren't just arbitrary rules or even merely a list of practical rules just to help a society function. Rather, the law of God is rooted in God's character. So, God says in the Ten Commandments, do not bear false witness. Why? Because God is a God of truth. Therefore, if you are the people of God, you too will tell the truth. God does not God says, do not commit adultery because God is a God who keeps covenants. God is a God who keeps his promises. So if you are to be the people of God, showing God to the nations, imaging God to the world at large, then you too need to be a people who keeps covenant with your spouses. If you are to be sons of the Father, then you should more and more be looking like him. Just like we begin to take on the appearance and the traits and characteristics of our earthly parents, so Israel should be all the more taking on the appearance and traits of God the Father. How can Israel effectively be a kingdom of priests mediating God's covenant to the nations if they look nothing like like God in how they live and in whom they are supposed to represent That makes no sense at all. Rather, Israel now has this special role to represent God and to be an earthly representative of God the Father to the nations. God gives Israel the law saying, this is what I am like and this is what it means to be my son, to be in my family, to be a part of my household. Now again, what was true of Old Testament Israel is true of New Covenant Israel, which is you. The church. Sometimes when we think of God's law, we we tend to restrict it to an Old Testament context. We say, well, the Old Testament was law and the New Testament is grace. And so we don't have to worry about the law. And yet we need to understand that it has always been about grace from the Old Testament until now. God didn't, think about this. Think about when God gives Israel the law. God didn't give Israel the law first and then grace later. No, no, no. He he didn't do that. Instead, he did the exact opposite. God saves Israel from slavery. He sets them free. He adopts them as sons. That's all pure grace. It's not until after he has done all of that that he finally brings them to the mountain and he says, you were slaves, you were in bondage, but I loved you and I rescued you and I set you free. You are now mine. Since you are now mine, you are to live in this way. And then he gives them the law. The law of Israel was not given to deliver them. The law of, Israel, the law of, uh, the law of God was not given to deliver Israel, I should say. The, the law was given to Israel after they were already delivered. Now this is what has happened to us as believers. Paul says that we were dead in our sins and 
and uh, trespasses and slaves to the prince of the power of the air. And that God comes in and God has saved us and he rescues us. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. In other words, not a result of keeping the law so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in the Christian experience, where does works come in? Before we're saved or after we're saved? It comes in after we are saved. After we have experienced the grace and the mercy and the rescue of our God. We are not saved by good works. We are saved to, unto good works that God has prepared beforehand in advance for you to do. And so God pours out his grace upon us. You and me, the church... He pours out His grace upon us. He delivers us. He redeems us from bondage to slavery. And then we read how, how our God comes to us on a mountain to give us His law. But this time it's not Mount Sinai. It's a mount in Galilee. And Jesus gives a sermon to the people. And He says, if you are a part of the kingdom of God, if you are a part of God's chosen race, if you are really sons of God... This is how the sons of God are to live. And so we see Jesus saying things in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 like, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Or you have Jesus later on in Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is saying, what I am telling you here in the Sermon on the Mount, what I am telling you is more than just tips for life. He's saying that the people of God are meant to image God as a son should image the Father. So, for example, when Jesus says what I just read, he says, love your enemies and love those who persecute you, he's not saying do this because Christians are just supposed to be nice people. He is grounding his expectation that his people will love their wicked persecuting enemies because that's how the Father acts. That's what Jesus says. Jesus' commands, command that you love your enemies is rooted not in some warm, fuzzy, pious notion. It is rooted in the very character of God. He's saying that while the sons of the devil may only love those who love them back, you, on the other hand, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father. You are imaging your Father when you love your enemies. You are imaging your Father when you are a peacemaker. Jesus says in the same sermon, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the hypocritical religious teachers of that day. Now that was a stinging indictment to the Pharisees. Because if anyone in Jesus' day was considered to be holy, if anyone was to be considered sons of God the Father, it was the Pharisees. But later on, Jesus confronts this matter of, uh, of sonship 
head on with them in John chapter 8. John 8, Jesus is debating the Pharisees. Jesus is calling God his father, but so are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are calling God their father. Jesus says in John 8, 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you heard from your father. Okay, now that's significant. Jesus is saying, Pharisees, I have a father, and so do you Pharisees. You have a father, but your father's different than my father. And then the Pharisees answer him in John 8, 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And really what they're saying is, by implication, God is our father. We are sons of God. And listen to how Jesus responds to them. Jesus said to them, if you were really Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. Now Jesus here is telling us something very important. He's telling us that people demonstrate who their father is, who their spiritual father is, based on the works that they do, based on how they live. So the Pharisees shoot back at him. In John 8, 41, they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. Probably taking a stab at the questionable events surrounding Jesus' birth. Not questionable to us, of course. But they say, the Pharisees say, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Listen to Jesus' reply. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do what your father desires. To do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And has nothing to do with the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, the point of this whole exchange is that you demonstrate who your father is by how you live. By what your desires are. You will naturally do the things that your father does. You will naturally image whomever your father is. So if your father is the devil, that's going to come out. I mean, you can try to fake it and hide it for a while, like the Pharisees, but it comes out who they really belong to. But if you really belong to God, you will live like He is your Father. That will come out. So, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. The Pharisees are the sons, are sons of the devil. And they live like Him. You, however, are sons of the Father in heaven... And Jesus gives them a law that in many ways explains and expounds upon the principles that are found in the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, if you really belong to my tribe, if God is really your father, you will reflect him, you will image him in these ways. 
Jesus says in that same sermon on the mount, Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's not just that, that, you, that as you live these things out, they give glory to God. But Jesus uses a more personal term. He says they will give glory to your Father. Some of you have earthly fathers who are very good, who are very honorable. And, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest compliments someone could give someone like you with, a, with an honor, honorable, good, earthly father is, man, that reminds me of your father. Or you're just like your father. While on the one hand, that can be a compliment to you if you have a good father, ultimately it's giving honor and attention to your father. It's pointing that person back to your father. And it's showing others who your father really is. That's one of the purposes of God's law, to show us what the Father is like, and as we live out God's law, people should notice that, and we are meant to use that as a way of leading people to give glory to God. I remember once I was talking with um, someone about um, my son Elijah, and, and yeah, this was after we had brought him home, and it was a, it was a lost person, it was someone who didn't know God, and, and somehow the the whole topic of the adoption came up, and, uh, and 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 this guy he was just he just thought that was so cool. He was just going on and on and on about how my wife and I were just so cool and how we're just so great to do that. Just so we're so awesome to do something like that. And, and I realized as I was talking to him, what I needed to do was to help this guy move in the direction that Matthew 5.16 wants him to move in, which is towards God, towards giving glory to God. So I had to break in, and he was being very nice and everything, but I had to break in and say, listen, listen, I didn't do this because I'm great or because my wife is great. We did this because God is great. God has adopted me into his family. I didn't deserve it. I didn't ask for it. But God graciously came in and he saved me. And the reason why, I'm ado- why I adopted Elijah is because my father is an adopting God. This is what my father does. And this is what he can do for you if you call on his name. So give glory and credit to God. God gave Israel his law. God gives us his law so that as we live it out, we are showing the world a glimpse of who our Father is and what he is like. We are to to image him as we follow and obey his law. God has saved his people to serve him. God has saved his people to image him. God has saved his people through a mediator. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What an ominous passage that is. What's happening here? God rescues the people. He gives them the law. 
and the people see this thunder and this lightning and this awesome physical manifestation of the fearsome presence of God and the people are freaking out. And they are, they are trembling, the text says, and they stood far off. Now why are the people so afraid? It's not just that they are afraid of lightning and thunder. But, but think about it. When, when was the last time these people witnessed such a fearsome manifestation of thunder and lightning? It's in Exodus chapter 9, and in the context of judgment. Israel was in Egypt, and, and God is judging the Egyptians through a plague of hail. And now they are brought to this mountain... And they are witnessing all kinds of terrifying manifestations of the awesome presence of God. And they are scared to death. And the Lord said to Moses, in, in chapter 19, listen to what God says to Moses. He says, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. Don't go up that mountain. You're going to die. Come, come too close to the mountain, coming too close to God means death. means that you will be consumed. And the people are in terror of the awesome presence of God, so they say to Moses, you speak to us, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And so the people stand over here, and Moses goes into the thick darkness where God was. And what's going on here? What's happening here is that the people recognize that if they stand before God without a mediator, they will die. They need someone who is accepted by God to stand between them and God. And throughout Moses' ministry, his main role was to serve as a mediator for the people. He would come to the people with God's words. He would lead the people. He would intercede for the people in prayer. He would plead with God to turn back from his wrath and not consume the people when they were wicked, when they rebelled. Now, now this should show us that the law doesn't save anybody from judgment. The people still recognize that they are in danger before God. God does not give Israel the Ten Commandments to save them from God's wrath. God does not give them the law to rescue them from judgment. God instead gives them a mediator. The people constantly broke the Ten Commandments. They constantly broke God's law. And they deserved the wrath and the judgment of God. Yet God does not consume them, and he does not consume them in part through the mediation of Moses. And God is showing us that this people that God wants to build, this Jesus tribe, will be a people that calls on the name of God, will be a people who loves God and serves God. They're going to be a people whom God considers as a son. They're going to be a people who are a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. They're going to be a people who will image their father through their obedience to him and a people that are protected from God's judgment through a mediator. Now, Moses was a sinner, just like the rest of Israel. Moses was not a perfect mediator. He was but a type and shadow pointing us to the true mediator. Moses himself needed a mediator lest he be consumed by God's wrath. 
and, and we, the, the new Israel, are no better than Old Covenant Israel. How many of the Ten Commandments have you broken? When I look at these Ten Commandments, when I look at these Ten Words, I know that I'm a goner. I'm dead. Unless a mediator draws near to where God is on my behalf to protect me from his wrath. Otherwise, you and I are just like those Israelites who cried out, <laughs> you, yeah, you, we're going we're gonna to die if we get too close to God. If Deemer Webb draws close to God and all I have is my own righteousness... My filthy rags, that's how the Bible describes Deemer Webb's righteousness. If that's all I've got, I'm going to be consumed. Those rags are going to be consumed, and so am I. Because I'm a sinner, and God is just, and the wages of sin is death. I need a mediator. I need an intercessor. And everything about Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 cries out and begs for something more than you can give and something more than I can give. I cannot be, I can't perfectly be a priest. I cannot perfectly be holy before God, even though that's what we are to be. I cannot and have not perfectly kept the Ten Commandments, even though that is what I am to do. I cannot and have not perfectly imaged my Father God. And so if all I have is Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, I'm a dead man. Because my sin and my guilt still hang over my head. And I cannot perfectly fulfill what we've been talking about this morning. But thanks be to God that we have more. Thanks be to God that we have Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is our perfect high priest. Jesus, who is pure and spotless and holy and totally without sin. Jesus, who is the living embodiment of those Ten Commandments. Jesus, who is the perfect Son of God, who images the Father perfectly. Jesus, who is the perfect Lamb of God who died in my place so my sins can be forgiven, Jesus who now sits at the right hand of God the Father as the perfect mediator, as Paul says in Romans 8, who's interceding for all those who belong to him. It is through our connection with the Son of God that ultimately we enter into the Jesus tribe, the Israel of God. And become sons of God and fellow heirs with him to the Father's inheritance. It is through our connection with the perfect Son of God that his righteousness becomes ours. And God treats us as if we kept the Ten Commandments perfectly and we're not consumed. It's through our connection with the one who the Bible says is the image of the invisible God. And it's through our connection with him that God is restoring his image in us rebuilding it and fixing it so that as time passes, we begin to look more and more and more like Jesus, who perfectly images the Father. And how are we connected to Jesus? We are united to him by placing our faith in him, by trusting Jesus. If you are here this morning and you are not a part of God's family, then you need a mediator or else you will be consumed by God's wrath. And I pray that you will receive Jesus as your mediator this day. And I'm more than happy to talk with you more about that when we're done here this morning. 
if you want to know how Jesus can be your mediator. Now, if you are already a member of the family of God, the tribe, if you will, my question for you is, do you look like your father? Do you look like your father? Are you showing his traits and his characteristics? When you look at God's law that tells you what the father is like, do you see your life conforming to that more and more and more over time? If someone were to follow you around for a week and observe your life, if they were to observe how you treated your spouse, if they were to observe, observe how they treated your kids, if they were to look at how you interacted with your neighbors, with lost people, if they were to look at how you worked on the job, if someone were able to peer into your mind and hear all of your thoughts and know all of your attitudes and your motivations, will that person say, you remind me of your father? I am scared to death to answer that question, friends, to be honest. I still fall short and I have a long way to go. And I, I've been convicted by my own sermon, and that happens to preachers a lot, I think. Um, and I've been asking myself that question a lot. Is Deemer Webb looking like his father? Or is he acting like he has another father? Am I imaging my father when I'm at home and I'm tired and my kids come to me with whatever and I just act all irritable and I just and mean and just kind of brush them off because I'm tired. I got my own thing going on. Am I imaging my father when, when I do that? I'm not. I'm imaging somebody else. Somebody who used to be my father. I, I've been particularly convicted about this in, in, in the workplace. And some of you know that I've struggled so much in the workplace lately with discontent and not being happy and being angry at how people treat me at work. And so that affects me. I let that affect me when I go to work. And I let it affect my attitude. And I wonder... Whenever I do leave that place, I wonder if people there are going to look back and say, yeah, God was his father. Or are they going to say, and this is what I fear the most, are they going to say, well, you know, Deemer talked about God a lot, and he preached to me a lot, and he gave Bible verses to me a lot. But man, he was really no different than the rest of us. And that, that question haunts me so much, guys. And it should haunt you, too. And it's not that I'm at work, you know, cursing or showing up drunk or, you know, anything like that. But I, I get concerned with how I carry myself there sometimes. And I fall into the grumbling and the complaining and the anger that other people around me are falling into. I, get, I let myself get sucked into that. And I get angry with my boss when he treats me mean. And I don't turn the other cheek, but I have this bitterness and this anger in my heart. And Jesus is telling me that Jesus' people love him. 
And then if I don't, I'm a murderer. Another commandment I've broken, I guess, many times. And so that question haunts me. So pray for me and let's pray for each other that we can be a church that's really showing the world who our Father is. We can preach all we want. And I love to preach and I love to talk. But I wonder how often the way that I live my life, how that undercuts and obscures the message that I'm proclaiming with my lips. Thank God I have a mediator. And thank God you do too. And thank God that he is committed to making us into a kingdom of priests and into a holy nation and conforming us into the image of Christ. The Bible talks about that, how, how more and more God is conforming us and shaping us to be like him. We are destined to be conformed to the image of God's son. And that, that process doesn't begin when we get to heaven. It begins now and it is going on now. Thank God he is committed to us in that. So let's ponder and reflect on those things this morning and this week. We have been brought into a wonderful family. We have an incredible inheritance waiting for us. We have an incredible father. We're a part of his household. Let's pray that God will help us to live up to the family name a little more. And if you're not a part of that family, I pray that you will join us. Let's pray together. Father God, I, I pray for help in this. I pray that what we have talked about and what we have looked at this morning, that these would not just be words, God. I can't be the only person in this room that struggles with this. I can't be the only person in this room that feels grief over this, Lord. I pray that you would convict us by the power of your Spirit. We all have areas in our life where we need change, where we need more transformation, where we need to image our Father better, whether it is in the home, how we treat our spouse, in the workplace, wherever. Every single person in this room has areas Areas that they need to grow. So show us, God, show us by your Spirit where we need help and help us to cling to you and to come to you and to ask you for help and to cooperate with the work of the Spirit, God. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes to those things, Lord, and that you would help us to come to the only one that can help us to be more like you. Thank you so much for loving us. And even though we fall a thousand times and we're so faithless to you, Thank you that you are ever faithful, that you are unchanging, and because you are committed to your glory, you're not going to leave us as we are. You want a world where there are multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes of people that look exactly like your son. And we look forward to that in the new heavens and the new earth. And wow, how glorified you will be when we are all reflecting your image perfectly. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing Jesus Paid It All. And hear the Savior say, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me. 
Jesus, for your truth. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you. Uh, we were able to be just washed in your word this morning. Thank you for the cleansing flood. Thank you for your blood that speaks a better word. Uh, thank you for saving us. Thank you for pulling us out, um, pulling us out of something deeper and stronger than Egypt. Thank you for being our Father, for being our God, for not leaving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, stay standing. The announcements are going to be real short today because we'll head on off to our Bible study classes in just a second. Um, praise God for the word this morning. Thank you, Deemer. And praise God that, um, that Deemer and Dana, they're a part of our church and that God uses them in a very powerful way.
Uh, Deemer's class will be downstairs in just a few minutes. And then Rewind, we're going to start with the opening real quick here in Rewind. Uh, it will be a short opening, and then we'll head on to Rewind class. But just a couple of quick things. Of course, today is Palm Sunday. Next week, uh, be here, be ready to celebrate the resurrection with our church family. Invite friends, if you want to, to come to church next week to hear the great news of the resurrection. And, of course, we have our Easter egg scramble next Saturday. And if you're not already signed up for that, then get with Kristen and Toby and talk to them about signing up to help out in some sort of way. But come help out, enjoy the event, but also it's a great time to mix in and meet people, uh, start spiritual conversations with people, share your faith if you get an opportunity, and just love on the community here through this Easter egg hunt that we have coming up. And another one other thing I want you to note is on May 8th, we'll be having a, uh, that's Mother's Day, we'll be having a baby or child dedication service on that day. And if you have a child, it can be a baby or it can be an older child that you've not had a chance to dedicate to the Lord and you want to do that on that Sunday, please talk with me and we'll get that organized. So that's it. Uh, go in the Lord and uh, just enjoy our Savior today. <laughs> 